Lots of people give up on God. Life gets hard. There are disappointments. Things that we thought we would be able to count on seem to go away. We may pray, seeking God's answer, and he doesn't answer right away. We may feel like things should go a certain way, and they don't seem to go that way. As a result, many people walk away from God. They just feel like, what's the point? So let me ask you this morning, what are things that you're wrestling with? What are the questions that you might have for God that might be keeping you from God? Consider these. God, why don't you heal? Fill in the blank. Why can't you just answer this prayer? Is there anyone here who has not felt that way sometime? Why did you allow blank to happen? Why won't you restore this relationship? Why did you allow trauma or abuse in my life? Why do you allow good people to suffer? Why do I have to wait so long? And why am I going through this situation? Our friend Nancy Abbott is the chaplain of the Greater San Antonio YMCA. This is a picture of Nancy with her horse, Daisy. She shares this. I remember going through a mysterious pain behind my knee years ago that literally changed my day-to-day life. The debilitating pain would occur out of nowhere, and I could hardly take it. I went to doctor after doctor for answers and finally ended up at Mayo Clinic. Even Mayo couldn't solve the problem. It wasn't until a year later that I was diagnosed with an issue with a nerve that caused all the madness. So many people prayed during that time for healing. I questioned God and his ways. Thankfully, with extensive therapy and lots of prayer, God healed me. Nancy adds, I find that we really don't like God's answers when they don't line up with what we want. I want God to want what I want. During that season of chronic pain, I wanted to see the reasons God allowed it and exercise my option to disagree with him. I find this verse gives me perspective in times when I question God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts.
Over the years, I've come to believe that these very tough circumstances in life have actually drawn me closer to God. Isn't that true? You know, if we allow it, if we allow him to be God, if we accept that for a season he's going to have challenges for us in our lives, and we trust him, we can draw closer to him, even though the times are hard. Maybe draw closer to him because the times are hard. We tend to believe only what we can see. What we fail to see is that God, what God can do. Jesus speaking, recorded in Matthew 19, verse 26. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We're going through the life of David right now, First and Second Samuel. And David is somebody who could have given up. You think about all the things that went through his life. It would have been easy for him to say, boy, I've been suffering more since I've been following God than ever before. I just want to chunk it. Put yourself in his shoes. Consider if this were happening to you. Faithful, starting in the early years, in the teens. A surprise blessing. Anointed. So far, so good. Placed in a position near the king who has problems. The king becomes jealous. The king tries to spear you. You escape, but the king comes after you. You flee to your enemies and flee and flee again. Your village is burned. Your wife kidnapped. Your soldiers, not really your friends, kind of frenemies, they talk of killing you. Where are you right now? Close to giving up? I mean, I think David could have justifiably said, this is too much. But he didn't. He continued to follow. But we might be asking questions about our own life. Why the problems? Why God? Why have you allowed X, Y, Z? If you've ever faced setbacks or ever thought about following God that doesn't pay, are you asking, why God? Or just ready to check out of being in the Lord's army? If you have ever faced setbacks or ever thought God is not hearing your prayers, today's message is for you. Remember what we saw last week that Saul, he's been the king of Israel. He started out good. He started out faithful to the Lord, humble. He started out with victories. God used him. But then there came a time when he became out for just what he could get. He only wanted what he got, what he could get. He, he was so full of himself that he felt like he could do anything. He wanted to kill somebody, he could kill them. And then when he turns his back on God and God says, I'm going to choose somebody else, he becomes 
so jealous that he's acting insanely. Finally, after years, God takes him out. Saul is the head of the Israeli army and defending their towns against the invasion from the Philistines. The Philistines come in and they defeat the Israeli army and they kill Saul and his sons. Saul is dead, killed by the enemies of Israel. But God is at work there. He intended all along to deliver David. And David has been in training. David has been in training for what God has up ahead, just as we are. God is actively working in every saint's life, every believer's life, to prepare them for what's next, to get them on the right track, to help them to be better than they were last year. And may God help us to be good soldiers in the Lord's army. Well, all through the dark times, God knew what he would do. We don't. We're locked in time. Think of a, think of a parade. You, you come out to see this great grand parade. And you're on a street corner and you can only see so much. You can only see so much of the parade. Part of it has already gone ahead and that's past. And you can't see what's in the past. You can only look at what you're seeing right now. You can't see what's ahead. But the Lord can. He sits above it all, doesn't he? He is eternal. He's outside of time and yet actively involved in all the affairs of mankind. And as the sovereign of the universe, the king, he's working situations to produce what he wants. And we can't see what's coming up ahead. We don't know what we need, but he does. And he's orchestrating things in our lives to bring about what he wants to bring into our lives. Can we trust him? And we should. And David did. Now, when all these hard times come, we could respond like Saul did. We could respond out of selfishness, willful disobedience. How did that work out? Or we can submit both to his authority and to the circumstances he orchestrates. David did that trial after trial. And then, even though the heavens seemed like brass at times and it seemed like his prayers were bouncing off the heavens unanswered, God shows up. Can someone say, yeah, God? God shows up. God begins to move. What a day. Well, look how God's next chapter in David's life, David's life begins to unfold. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your phones to 2 Samuel. We're going through the first and second books of Samuel, really all one book originally, and it begins with Samuel, the great Old Testament judge, the last 
of the judges. A period of God's timing is coming to a close. And when Samuel comes on the scene, he's preparing to start a new chapter in the life of his people. He's now going to allow them to have a king. And, and so Samuel anoints the first king of Israel, Saul. Saul doesn't walk with the Lord. And so God anoints the second king. He anoints David to be the king that he always wanted to give Israel. I think there's a lesson there for wanting something too soon, too fast, and not waiting for God's timing. We see David anointed as king. And I want to say to you about this, this is the continental divide. Have you ever been in the Colorado Rockies and you're driving through and you get to a high altitude and you see a sign like this? Continental divide. You know, you've reached a summit. You've reached a place where if the rain falls on one side of the sign, it runs down to the east. It falls on the other side of the sign, it runs where? To the west. Winds up in different states. A big divide. Well, that's what this chapter is in the life of David. That's what this chapter is in the life of all God's people. This is where God does something new. Up until now, for about 10 years, David has been on the run. David has trusted God, and yet things have not gone out the way he wanted them to. He couldn't understand it at times, I'm sure, but he trusted God. So let's see what happens. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord. This is after Saul's army had been defeated and Saul has been killed. Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? He's saying, I'm here in Ziklag. I'm, I'm still in Philistine territory. I've been hiding out from Saul because he's trying to kill me. But now he's dead. Lord, should I go up? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which city shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also. David doesn't tell God he's going to do this. He humbly asks God. And God says, go to Hebron. That's a prominent city with a history. That's a prominent city, centrally located, right in the center of Judah. A great place to make as your capital. A great place for David to come in and take over. But notice, it wasn't David's will. It was God's. David didn't go there full of ego. He goes there humbly and asks God, should I do this? If so, where should I go? He's doing God's will. Verse 3, And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. How many tribes are there? Twelve. Twelve, thank you. What tribe is David from? 
All right, good. Judah, a little tougher question. What tribe was King Saul from? Benjamin. All right. So he's back in Judah now at God's will, God's leading, and he's there. And the men of Judah, they come and they remember who led them to victory. Before David got chased out of the country, he was leading them to victory. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Wow. David has been the victor. It's very interesting. All his lifetime, 40 years as king, Saul made very little impact in defending the country and defending it against the enemies. Very little inroads into uh, the land that the enemy had taken over, taken from them. Most of the victories had all come through David. And Judah remembers this. And so they come and they anoint David as king. To anoint is to dedicate to office by smearing the head with a sweet-smelling oil. It was God's way of recognizing somebody for that office. That was God's program for David to be king. But notice that the nation as a whole was not accepting David. Where were the other 11 tribes? Sometimes God begins slowly. You know, we want everything all at once, right? Sometimes God begins working in our life slowly. That's God's way. But at least one tribe gets it. The others don't. Not yet. Sometimes God doesn't do his work all at once. He doesn't answer all the prayers that we want because he is preparing us for something. Now, God opens the door. He begins that work. He takes David and he is anointed king. So, David is king. What's his first action? Gather up his army and go conquer those other tribes? Make them? No, he didn't do that. Very interesting. His first action as a newly installed king, he sees the good in others and acknowledges it. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. Now remember, he died in battle and the Philistines took his body and cut off his head. And took his head to one of their pagan temples and set it up in the temple. Kind of a way of saying, hey, our God is more powerful than your God, Israel. It's a way of mocking the king and mocking the country and their God. But the body, I think they mutilated it. And they put it up on a wall in Beth Shan to let everybody know they were the power in town. Jabesh Gilead, they had been a, a, a country on the other side of the Jordan who in the past, many years earlier, enemies had come and they had told Jabesh Gilead, we're going to conquer you, surrender. And so Jabesh figured, well, nobody's going to come and help us. We're on our own. Okay, we'll surrender. And the people said, all right, we're going to come in and we are going to 
gouge out every person's right eye. Well, they were horrified, naturally. And so they sent a message to Israel saying, would you please come help us? Well, in that day, we had 12 tribes. They're all scattered. Nobody helped anybody else. And so they figured if seven days go by and nobody helps, we'll submit. We'd rather submit than to be killed. But Saul hears about it. And I love this. Saul had been anointed. And as I've said, when he was younger, he followed the Lord initially. But humbly, he went back after being anointed as king, and he was plowing his father's field. And when he hears this message, he hears the people crying, and he asks, what happened? And they say, and I think the Spirit of the Lord came on him. And he cut up the oxen, and he sent a portion of that cut-up ox to every town, every city in Israel. And he said, anybody that doesn't come to help defend this city of ours, their ox would be like that. <laughs> well, the people took notice. You know, all of a sudden, they rallied together, and they marched, and they delivered the people of Jabesh-Gilead because Saul had been bold and courageous. So now that Saul is dead, the people of Jabesh-Gilead do the right thing. Do the brave thing. You know what they do? They hear all the valiant men, they marched all night. They got to Beth Shan. They got to the city where the body of Saul has been desecrated and is hanging there in shame. And they're risking their lives because the Philistines have just been here and they've just overpowered the whole nation of Israel. So now the men of one city bravely come and they remember their hero. And so they take his body down and they go back to their own town, cross the Jordan River and they bury his body and they fast seven days. When this is told to David, he sees how valiant they are. And he sends word to them and he praises them I got to tell you, if it had been me, you know, and the guy that's been trying to kill me for many years is dead, I might have been tempted to say, just leave him there. But David recognized the bravery and the courage and the loyalty to their former king. And he praises them for it. When they told David... It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you showed loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. You showed loyalty. You showed chesed. The Hebrew word hesed speaks of steadfast love, loving kindness, covenant loyalty. You have hesed towards somebody when you were loyal to somebody that you have a meaningful relationship with. God has hesed 
towards his people. And we are doing well when we imitate that hesed, when we imitate that loyalty. And David recognizes this. He praises them for the good that they did. I might ask you something. Are you a person who praises others? Are you a person who is an encourager? The New Testament exhorts us to be. We all like to be praised when we do something good, don't we? Yeah, we do. I do. Husbands like hearing their wives say, Honey, the yard looks good. You're doing a good job on that. Wives like being encouraged by their husbands, like hearing that they're pretty. Guys, let your wives know that you think they're attractive and praise them, not just for that, but for the good person they are. Church people give of their time. They volunteer. Many of you have stepped up in many ways. Now, I think about, all right, we had the memorial service for your brother last Sunday. And many people stepped up. Just for example, a sampling would include the PowerPoint being made, the people running the sound, the person who made the program for the funeral, people that served the food, and much more. All of us came together as a church family, and we got to celebrate and to remember the life of a, of a person that you were close to and to honor you. When we do things like that, and we do many things out of service, uh, the lawn being maintained, four acres. I complain because my yard has a fifth of an acre, and I have to, <laughs> have to do that. There are four acres, and we have people that step up and do that every week, and I, I'm so thankful for people who serve. May we all recognize and acknowledge the good that we see in others. Now, it's true, many of the things that we do will never be known. And that's okay, because the ultimate praise comes from who? From God our Father, when we're with Him. But as we travel this life, let's encourage one another. Life just goes so much better when the love is expressed, isn't it? Isn't it better when we do that? Let's praise people when they do something good. Verse 6, now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. David is saying, you, you showed it to Saul, now may the Lord show it to you. Good is reciprocated, especially when we do good things. God likes to do good things back to us. Now, it may not always seem like that, or maybe it takes a while. But I truly do believe that's the kind of God we serve. He sees when we do good. And he blesses us. It's reciprocal. David adds, And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. And verse 7, Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. A couple things. One is he hopes God will bless them. But number two, he's thinking ahead. One tribe 
one only has joined with him, has lifted him up, has put him in the position God wants him to be, and the other 11 haven't done that. And he's looking forward. He's thinking, I want to get valiant people. I want to get good people on my team. In order to go forward with this next chapter that God has for us, let's work together. Let's do good things together. And so he's saying, may the Lord bless you. And now that I've been anointed king, perhaps you'll consider joining in the good work. God wants unity. God wants these 12 tribes to work together. But Ishbosheth is made king of Israel. Here we see the rift between Judah, the southern tribe, this main powerhouse in the south, and the other 11 tribes to the north. There's a conflict between them brewing, which will further develop as history goes forward. Verse 8, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Israel. Ishbosheth was Saul's son, and he was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Abner is the real power here. Abner was Saul's general. And Abner thinks he knows what's best. And so he goes with tradition. He, he knows that the tradition is when a king dies, you make the son king. And so Abner becomes the kingmaker, but he's really the power behind the throne. He's really the one in charge. He's making the decisions. Well, wait a minute. Who does God want to be king? David. Not the son of Saul. Abner's a man driven by the flesh apart from God's will. And likewise, the 11 tribes were rejecting God's will for them. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So God is unfolding his plan gradually. He ultimately wants David to be in charge of all the 12 tribes, but he begins with one. When God puts you in a position where you have influence, be faithful in that position. Do what God wants you to do, whether you're a deacon, an elder, a pastor, Sunday school teacher, Whatever your role is, be faithful in that position and God will grow your influence for him. Well, something else is happening here. The Battle of Gibeon. It starts out with a competition between young warriors and ends up as a war between brothers of a split family. Verse 12, Abner, son of Ner, the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. 
and Joab, the son of Zechariah. And she was David's older sister. And the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. They sat down, one group on one side of the pool and the other group on the other side of the pool. And here's a picture, by the way, of the pool of Gibeon. It's 37 feet wide and 32 feet deep, cut out of solid rock, so it is still there today. Now, it would fill up with some water in the bottom during the rainy season. And there's a, you can see it there, there's carved into the rock a circular descending staircase that people could go down and they could get water for their village, for Hebron. It's on the north side of, of Hebron. So here you have Abner and the servants of Ishbosheth and Joab and the servants of David meet at Gibeon. You have two factions, both part of God's nation. Now notice something, David is not here. And that's very important. I believe if David had been here, it would have gone differently. But you have these two willful men. What will they do? Verse 14. Abner says to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number. Twelve for Benjamin, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into the opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, the place is called Hellcat Hazarim. One scholar translates it flint knives, the place of flint knives. Apparently, they were fighting with flint knives. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten, were beaten before the servants of David. So they both, both sides agree on this kind of gladiator contest. And before you know it, it's escalated to a real fight where people are dying. And when Abner tries to dominate, he tries to use force. But when he loses, he and his men take off fast, but they're followed. Verse 18, the three sons of Zerariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asael. Now, Asael was swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asael pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following him. At this time, you know, he, Abner's running, and he's a great, great military man, but he's running, but this really swift sprinter is behind him, and he looks back, and he says, is that you, Asael? And Asael says, it is I. And Abner says, turn to the right or the left, pick up some of the spoils of the fallen men. Asael is unmoved. He's determined. But Abner knows he's the more fierce competitor, he knows he can kill Asael, and so he says, Asael, turn to the right or the left. If you don't, I'll have to strike you down, and how will I ever face Joab, your, your brother? Don't make me do it. 
Asael is unfazed, and he continues to follow. So what happened? Abner, this great, powerful man, running with his spear, he thrust the spear into Asael's stomach so hard that it pierced his stomach and came out the back. And he falls down dead. But Joab and Abishai, his two brothers, pursued Abner still. As the sun was going down, they came to the hill. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves behind Abner and came as one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have not given up the pursuit of their brothers until morning. But Joab blew the trumpet and called off the pursuit. I was interacting with Jean Blanchard on this, and and here's how he summed it up. A partial truce, an agreement was reached between Joab and Abner. What could have been a bloody battle between brothers of the kingdom of Israel was averted when they remembered they were family. Joab, Abishai, Asiel, these three brothers were alike, and they were rash, violent men. Abishai, as we saw earlier in our study, was quick to be violent. You'll remember the time that David said, hey, Saul and his men are down there. It's night. They're asleep. Who will go with me into the camp? And Abishai, being bold and courageous, said, I'll go. And so David and Abishai march into their camp. And the text tells us God made an incredible sleep come upon the whole army. So they were able to go in. And they reach their enemy. They reach Saul. And Abishai says, let me strike him with my spear. I won't have to hit him twice. David says, whoa. Don't hurt the man. Let God deal with them. You see the difference? See the difference there? And Joab (laughs) is a brooding, willful general. He will have a history of being violent when David wants to create peace. And now, the third brother, Asiel, is so headstrong that he will not listen to reason even to save his own life as he relentlessly pursues a much stronger Abner, who finally has no alternative but to slay him. Kyle McCarter adds, the audience, and that includes us, is being prepared for the contrast that David himself will make in chapter 3, where he describes himself as gentle, in contrast to the sons of Zariah, who he says are rougher than I am. David is king of Judah, but he cannot control these hard soldiers. 
Verse 29, Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marched the whole morning and they came to their hometown. And Joab went back to Hebron. When I read this, I struggled. How do you make application of that? How do you apply that? This guy is running so fast, he's running too close, and he gets killed. What do I say to you? Don't drive your car too close to the car in front of you. Learn how to grab your enemy by the head and thrust him through? I mean, really, how do you make application? But I have come up with two. Here they are. Number one, use the right weapons, which are humility and unity. You know, often we fight with the wrong weapons. We fight out of the flesh. We fight out of our fleshly tendencies and we see that in Abner. We see him try to do everything out of the flesh, willful flesh in contrast to what God wants. And isn't the world like that today? You know, God says this, and the world says, I want that. That's right. And it minimizes what God says. God says, pursue the narrow path. And the world takes the broad path to destruction. But we fight a spiritual battle. The weapons of the flesh do not prevail here. Arrogance and brutality do not prevail. Following Christ's example helps us. I love Philippians 2 where it talks about his humility. The Son of God being humble? Yeah. He left heaven. He put aside the glory of being with his father. He left heaven. He came to earth. And not just to earth, but he came to live a humble life. And then finally, to die. And not just any death, but death on a cross. The most humiliating, agonizing death I can imagine. By the way, why did he do that? Because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. Now, if I die to pay for my own sin, I will be forever separated from a God who loves me and wants me to be with him in heaven. So the only alternative was for God to send the only truly righteous one. The Son of God was willing to do all that for you and for me, to die for my sin and for your sin, so that by receiving him, by accepting him, by believing on the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again, we can have eternal life. And we not only get to live in heaven eternally with God, but we get to experience life as it was intended to be lived now. Truly is a win-win situation. So what we see here is that David is a man after God's own heart. He did not start out with the military, but diplomacy. He entreated those of another tribe. He complimented them for their bravery, 
and their loyalty, even to the man who sought to kill David. He hopes the people of Jabesh-Gilead, who were loyal to Saul, will see his just cause and join with him to be loyal to him. Humility brings unity. Would you say that with me? Humility brings unity. Second, be persistent in faith. Let's end where we begin. Life has its challenges. If you're alive, if you're sucking air, I know you've had challenges. That's the common experience. And sometimes we ask, why, God? Why are my prayers not being answered, at least not as quickly as I want? Why do things not work out the way I want? We don't understand why sometimes. We don't understand why things go against us, just as they went against David. He'd been promised by God to become king. But he's thrown out of his own country. He becomes an outcast. Evil men seem to prosper, and no doubt, God didn't seem to be answering David's prayers. You may have been there. David ran from Saul for many years, perhaps 10 or so. He knew what it was to be in hardships. He knew by experience what it was to persevere even when God didn't seem to be there with him. And sometimes that's what you have to do. Sometimes faith is all you have. You have to trust and hold on to God and give him time to work. So persevere, push on, keep the faith. Sometimes that's all we can do, but it's enough. Faith and following Christ faithfully pleases God. In the end, in this life or the next, God will honor the faith that perseveres. Don't give up. Father God, thank you for this story. Thank you, Father, for the illustration of David and how you worked in his life. Lord, 10 years or so of being on the run, that must have been really tough. Kind of puts our hardships into perspective. But we see, Father, he was faithful to you. In contrast to Saul, David was faithful. He persevered, not always perfectly, but he was faithful to the end. And Father, we see the good that you brought about. Lord, I know that you're active in, in believers' lives. I know that you seek to help the saints of God. And Father, help us to trust you, to depend on Christ, and to walk with you every day. Because we know, Father, in the end, you win. And we who are on your side win with you. Help us persevere.